what is an acceptable loss in a building fire? And I'm sitting there thinking about this as they're debating it. And I raised my hand and he goes, oh, Captain, you have a comment. I said, yes, we're having this discussion about acceptable losses of occupants in a building. And you could see he was a little uneasy a little bit. And I go, what about us? We're going in for those acceptable losses. And he goes, we love our firefighters. We love our firefighters. It says it right in the intent of the code. And I sat there going, uh, you know, to pull my old Larry David, uh, I don't think so, right? And so I went back and I wrote a six-page letter to the IFF and to Rich Duffy, and I copied our district vice president, Tommy Miller, at the time. And I said, this topic, this topic, this topic. And I gave a summary and all this. And I said, we need to be involved in this arena. And um, long story short, Rich called me and he said, hey, listen, uh, yeah, we, you're right. We're going to get involved. And I go, good, good. We got a retired fire marshal or something. He goes, no, no, you just volunteered. I go, I, I go, Rich, I've never been in fire prevention. He goes, your idea, your responsibility. <laughs> back to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. I went about a year and a half with releasing episodes about every other week, and uh, the day job here recently has gotten in the way of doing that. It seems that uh, pre-COVID travel is back into full swing. Uh, but with that travel allowed me to connect with some old friends and acquaintances, and one of those acquaintances you'll get to hear from on this episode. As I get back to a more regular and consistent schedule for putting these episodes out, make sure you Click subscribe on your podcast platform, and while you're at it, click a five-star rating and give a review. Make any comments and leave me some suggestions and feedback on what we've been doing with this podcast and the guests. For this episode, I got to chat with Sean DeCrane. Sean's a retired battalion chief from the Cleveland, Ohio Fire Department who now works for UL, or what has been known as Underwriters Laboratory in the past. We talked a lot here about his career and some of the legends of the Cleveland Fire Department that were his mentors and role models as he came up through the ranks, and how free beer and a dare got him involved in fire and building code development and firefighter safety. And I really do hope I get up to Cleveland soon and meet some of those legends we spoke about on this episode, episode 47, with Chief Sean DeCrane. Enjoy. Well, uh, again, thanks for uh, thanks for getting on with me. It's uh great to talk to you we hadn't seen each other in probably a couple of years until we bumped into each other in boston yeah uh, that was weeks great ago and, uh, and nice to catch up even for a short time and i uh, said hey let's get together and do this podcast thing and you graciously agreed to do that no so, I, uh, I i i've known you a long time robbie and i really appreciate it and have always appreciated working with you hanging out with you coordinating or collaborating with you so uh no I, this is this is great i always like to talk about the old days <laughs> Yeah, and, that, and that's what this is about. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 the whole idea is, you know, sitting around a kitchen table with those senior members and telling stories and hearing how it was done back, you know, when they rode the tailboard or when they when it was an open cab. And, yep, I did some of that, too. Yep, um, I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, and literally the first episode I did, some of the guys I had on, they got phone calls. They said you didn't ride tailboard, and they were like, "Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, we did." There did there weren't jump seats on our model match yeah. back then, so we had to ride tailboard. Well, we going to actually, car. in Cleveland, it was my uncle that died in the line of duty, falling off the tailboard, that changed how you know that that's that's what ended the tailboard riding in the city of Cleveland in, really? in the early seventies. And uh, my uncle Joe, you know, he was at, he was working in a different station and they got an alarm and they're going down and the, the, there's a road called Oak Park. And as you come down, there's a quick S in it. He didn't know it was coming up and he got thrown from the back of the rig as he was putting his coat on and hit a telephone pole. Oh, wow. Now here's a, here's an interesting story of how small of a world today is. Uh, that was 1972. And we moved into our house 25 years ago. And as I was, I was working on the house because uh, they were building it, and I was doing floors and everything. When we met the neighbors across the street, we became very good friends. But as we're talking, somehow that story came up, and the neighbor across the street, Norm, looks at me, and goes, "Wait a minute, your uncle fell off a fire truck on Oak Park?" And I said, "Yeah." He goes, "That was my grandmother's house." That happened at the telephone pole in front of my grandmother's house. And I was like, wow, get out of here. <laughs> it was so he was on the job in Cleveland. Is yes. that what you said? Yes. Is that is that you know, going back to your story, is, is did he have something to do with you getting on the fire department or how did you get involved in the fire service early on? Well, I grew up right outside of Cleveland, you know, right next door to Cleveland. And I knew my uncle Joel, you know, listen, I was seven years old at the time when, when he died. But uh, my uncle Jimmy was on the fire department in my community. And so every parade, you know, there was uncle Jimmy on the fire truck. Uh, when my sister Colleen got stuck up in the tree in the backyard, there was uncle Jimmy. Uh, we had a plane crash, a small commuter plane hit the house down the street. There was uncle Jimmy, right? Uncle Jimmy was always there. And for the longest time that I can remember, I always looked at my Uncle Jimmy like wide-eyed, like I want to be like him. And then my Uncle Joe died on the job. and But I always wanted to be like my Uncle Jimmy. And, you know, I, I still see him. You know, it's great. And, uh, but, yeah. And, you know, it didn't. I didn't, like, come right out of high school and go, I want to be Uncle Jimmy, so I'm going to start taking the test and everything. Uh, you know, I came out of high school and had to go right to work. College wasn't an option, so I had to start working. And I got sidetracked. And then finally, someone on our rugby team, George Mulheim, who was a Cleveland, he got on the fire department. And he was like, Decrane, I hear you keep talking about it. It's time to do something about it. And he slapped me upside the head. And another, while you were playing rugby, which is probably just a tap. Well, you, you can't hit me up the head rugby. where there's no sense. There's no feeling, right? I'm not going to feel that. <laughs> so, but a number of us from the fire, to, from the rugby team, went and took the test. And, uh, a bunch of us got on, and uh, I remember I was, I was actually living in the, in, George had a duplex, and I had the bottom half, and he kicked open the back door. I was bartending at the time, so he kicked open the back door, and he goes, "Get up! The list is uh, the list is available," and he dragged he dragged my ass out of bed, and uh, we drove we had to drive down to city hall where you could see the eligibility list, and there I was number eighty two, and he slapped me, and he's like you got a job. 
Nice. So yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming this is well before the internet. If you had to drive to City Hall to see so the list, this was 1989, and then I got hired in 1988, and then I got hired in January. Uh, actually, we got hired the day before Thanksgiving in 1990, but because the list was expiring and the city was in a budget crunch, what they did is they delayed the hiring date to until January 7th, 1991. To get to the new budget year? Is exactly. That the, the money exactly. So what was the city of Cleveland like in the late 80s, early 90s uh, when you came on? Oh, the department or the city itself? I mean, the city, uh, the city was... You know, I want to say pretty run down. There was an effort at that time to really improve the city. But it was uh, in, in Cleveland, both of our sports teams played at a stadium that was down on the lakefront that was built actually to, in 1932 to attract the, the Olympic Games. And in the 1980s, both teams, the Browns and the Indians, played in this ballpark. And the Indians, they would get 86,000 people at opening day. I mean, it was crazy, right? They'd get 86,000 people on opening day, then 8,600 the next day. Uh, so you had this cavernous stadium. And uh, and then right in the, the one part of downtown, the south part of downtown, it was all dilapidated. And there were empty warehouses. And so there was a push in the early 1990s to build a new baseball park in an arena because the Cavaliers were playing down in Richfield, Ohio, that was pretty much halfway between Cleveland and Akron. So if you wanted to go see the Cavs or a rock concert or any concert or the circus, you'd have you a hockey game, you had to drive 30 minutes. So they uh, took all this area in the, right on the right south side of downtown and they put up this new ballpark and it opened in 1994. And it really, really changed the city downtown. It really revitalized the downtown area. But, you know, still in the late 1980s, early 1990s, it was a city that was struggling. And in some ways we still struggle, right? So uh, we, were that, we were that proverbial uh, family that lived paycheck to paycheck. So, yeah, you know, it was, you, know you, you hear about, you know, those dilapidated cities, the rundown cities, mm -hmm. kind of the businesses have gone away, they're vacant warehouses. And, and sometimes that creates fire problems in and of themselves. Were you seeing, was the fire department seeing that kind of challenge in that oh, yeah. kind of rundown environment? Absolutely. I, I remember when I came out of the academy, my first assignment was ladder four, which is on West 32nd of Lorraine. And it's low income at the, at that time, it was real low income, and we were busy. It took my it took my second day in the job to get my first work, and then it seemed like, you know, we had a fire. It seemed like every shift or every other shift, uh, you know, we were we were busy. That was also the time we were transitioning into medical responses, so we were taking over additional responsibilities in that. I think everybody that was hired after 1981 was required to get an EMT status. And we were, you know, our class was required to be EMTs. But uh, like that neighborhood now has been regentrified in a lot of areas. You know, it's an older section of the city. And now as you see the downtown growth, people want to be closer to downtown. And you've seen a lot of younger couples or uh, 
you know, young uh, individuals come in and take over a hundred year old house, rehab it and really make it nice. They probably bought it for $10,000 and that thing's probably worth $200,000 right now. So it's, you know, you, you see those areas and I'm, I'm sure a lot of our urban cities, especially in the Midwest and the East, uh, have experienced that. Yeah, it's, hap- it's happening in Richmond as well. I mean, yeah. it's kind of the same kind of environment. You know, part of the city gets run down and now all of a sudden you get that, that influx of young folks coming in, doing doing the very same thing you ex- you explained there is re- rehabbing houses and row houses and, and it's, building the community back up. Right, that's great. And you you wish we could accelerate that at times, you know, in a city like ours. I mean, I love Richmond. My brother-in-law lives down in Chester. No, uh, so, well, mold stomping grounds. Yeah, yeah. you know, our, my wife's niece got married at the Science Center there. That was pretty cool. Reception right. was in the Science Center there in Richmond. So, yeah, Cleveland's, all, you know, a lot like Richmond. We were a steel town and an automobile town for many, many years. And now we have one steel mill that's still operational but uh you know we we have to learn to grow and change as a community and in the services we can provide and you know i love my city i absolutely love being from cleveland i love living in cleveland uh so i'm always pulling for it there you go and and following that uh that cleveland browns team we were talking about going to uh with guy santelli about going to going to uh green bay and catching a football game and like 17 below weather or some craziness so like that. So it it's funny you mentioned that, Robbie. Uh, Guy has always told me if the Browns play the Packers at Lambeau, you and your wife are going because Guy and his brothers have season tickets. And so, I don't know, what is it, spring they announce who the next opponents are going to be yeah. or very early in summer. So sure as crap, it's there, Browns versus Packers. And Guy immediately calls me and goes, hey, I told you, you have tickets. And then it's later on, all of a sudden, they announced the actual dates. And so, actually, the Browns were playing the Packers on Christmas Day at Lambeau. So, Guy called. And I go, hey, Guy, um, who he's lost over 100 pounds. Congratulations yeah. to that man. We're seeing him at I'm gonna get, PA. He I'm going to get him great. on here, too, one day. Yeah, yeah, he looked great. Yeah. But so, Guy called me. He goes, hey, it's on Christmas Day. And I said, no, I know it's, you know, you probably do a family thing. He goes, no, 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 we're going to get rid of, you can have all four. And we're like, all right, we're going to Green Bay for Christmas. And Merry Christmas. Yeah, our daughters are 20, at the time, 25 and 28. And they're like, oh, you're going to abandon us on Christmas? And I'm like, like I'm going to hear the little pitter patter of your feet before 3 p.m. on Christmas Day. You won't miss us. We said, we'll do Christmas when we get back. They go, how about before you go? (laughs) (laughs) They wanted the cash before. But um, it was awesome. I mean, it was about, 35 degrees, 32 degrees, and just the atmosphere was awesome. There were a few other guys from the fire department that were up there. One of the guys, Sean North, his brother works for Sherwin-Williams up at Green Bay, and he had a nice tailgate for us, and the atmosphere was like a college football game. It was just fantastic. Talk about small-town football teams. We had a technical committee there, a meeting there one time, and got got us into the stadium for a little short tour, and it's – it's a small town with a small football stadium that has a following that's probably bigger than the Dallas Cowboys or Jaguars or yeah. New England or any of those those teams. So it's pretty – even when there's no team there, it was you kind of got that vibe of this is this is oh, Packer was, country. We were, we were in guys' seats, which are great seats, down in the, in the end zone, and about six rows up. And uh, 
Browns could have won that game. Baker throws four interceptions. I mean, you're just sitting there going, how do you throw that interception? My, my wife was more pissed off than anything. And I'm just kind of – I found myself cheering for the Packers at times. You know, it was like you just get caught up in the whole atmosphere. And uh, go with it was great. Yeah, oh, it was fantastic. If anyone ever gets a chance to go to a football game at Lambeau, you got to do it. Got to go. Yeah. Cool. Well, back to the fire department. You you said you got hired in the, in the what ninety? You went to a ladder company. You went to a ladder company. Went to a ladder company right off the bat. Is that normal? I mean, in, in my old department, it was, that was kind of rare that you a rookie firefighter would go to a ladder company. So when you but, come out of the academy person? in Cleveland, um, everything depends on the openings that are available. So we would sit down. I was our chief of training for a while. We would sit down and we would assign the cadets and how you did it through our apprenticeship program here in Cleveland. We're part of the state of Ohio's apprenticeship program. So you'd be assigned. It depends what time of the year you come out of the academy. If you come out towards the end of the year, your first assignment will be longer. But uh, we came out in April. So from April to uh, January 1st, I was assigned to truck four. Then your second move, you do a second move. And typically if you were on a truck, or, you know, you could be on a truck, a squad, or an engine. Very rarely on the squad because we didn't have many openings. But if you were on a truck, we'd try to put you on an engine. If you were on an engine, we'd try to put you on a truck. Like that. you get a rotation. And then you would serve a whole year in that rotation, January to January. You know, January 1st to December 31st. And then your third assignment would be your permanent move until you were promoted or you transferred out, you could bid out by seniority, that type of thing. So uh, you did that three places. Like I was at ladder four, then went to engine 36, and then went to rescue squad one on my third assignment. So, so you mentioned the term apprenticeship. Is that that first two-year stint where you're kind of – that's your first stint on a ladder or then an engine or vice versa, and then – then you're going into your regular role. We, we call it probationary time right? Uh, when you came out of the academy. Is that kind of the same thing? Kind of the same thing. We go grade, fourth grade, third grade, second grade, first grade, firefighter, journeyman. So, excuse me, basically your apprenticeship program is about a three-year program. Are you required to do certain uh, benchmark trainings or certifications or uh, uh, skill sets no you've got to have to come training, out of that? But for three years, you go through, you record the training that you're taking, or you're doing, like you should be when you're at the firehouse, you're sitting on watch duty, you should be studying. Uh, a lot of the, you know, like when I went to ladder four, my senior guy was Tommy McCarthy. And this, he was a friggin' legend on the fire department, still is, right? And when we got our assignments when we were in the academy, when people said truck four, you go to truck four, they started telling me stories about this guy. And he would use the axe to go up the side of a house to get to the second floor. He would go up downspouts. So I heard all these stories. And uh, it's funny when I, you know, they release us from the academy on our last day. And they go, go take your gear to your assignment, introduce yourself, and we'll all meet back at the academy for the end of the day. And I walked in and there's this short little bald guy. And he goes, who are you? And I'm like, and I immediately had the sense of fear. And it was, he goes, he goes, I said, Oh, Sean Crane, I'm, I'm being assigned here, uh, C shift. And, uh, he's like, well, I know your boss and your boss likes donuts. So you better have donuts when you show up in the morning. Right. <laughs> I'm sidetracking, you know, me. 
Oh, yeah. So my first shift day, I showed up. And of course, I had a couple dozen donuts. And that little man, he was my boss. <laughs> right. But but, you know, Lieutenant Grip, he got in the morning, did his paperwork and he went downstairs and he started lifting. He would always walk up and the crane, come here. Ask me to find a tool. And he, I start to walk away. He goes, and I want to hear one door, right? Uh, but uh, every day, quiz. every day, he was, you know, he was getting on me. Get out there, know that truck, know that equipment. And Tommy McCarthy, who had all this time, you know, the, everyone called him the old man. And um, every day he was out on that rig, and he's the only man I ever met that actually rotated the clevis pins when they were supposed to be rotated. He knew that truck inside and out, how it had it worked on it every single day. And then after he got done with his uh, check and worked through with the apparatus, he'd grab me and he'd start going over things and could not have been more generous with his time, could not have been a better mentor. And, you know, I had a great shift. But Tommy, like my second day in the job, I got my first work. And Henry Grip was off, but John Higgs was the lieutenant. And it was just a typical wood frame. Uh, we, we have them all over the Midwest and the East Coast. You know, asphalt shingles on the side. Fire's blowing out the second floor. He goes, Sean, go get a straight ladder, get up on that porch roof and open up the front of that house. And I was so excited, right? And as I'm running, walking quickly to go get the ladder, I lurk over my shoulder and there's Tommy McCarthy climbing up the downspout on top of the, he's up on top of the roof of the porch. And, uh, but as soon as I got there, hey, Tommy, you're, he goes, come here, kid, come here. And then he, he just started talking to me and telling me what to do. And, you know, I could not have had uh, better mentors getting on the job than that crew at, at ladder four. And it, that's one of the questions I usually ask uh, folks is uh, who, who were the mentors coming in, in, in early in your career? And it sounds like those two, Lieutenant Grip and Tommy McCarthy. Yeah. And Skip McNamara, absolutely. Jay Pats, they, they were my crew. And, I didn't finish your question there. So those first three years, uh, yeah, you're supposed to be logging your training, going in, what are you studying? Uh, there's an expectation that you're every day you're at the station, you're doing something, uh, whether it's drilling, whether it's reading. And then each month the officer is uh, assessing you. They have to complete an assessment and then they sit down and they share it with you. Hey, this is, this is why you got this. This is why you got that. This is what you need to work on. And you go actually through that for, for three years as part of the awesome. apprenticeship program. It, it, is there any driver training involved in that? Or you're a yes. back step jump seat fire. You see you're driving as well. We'll get So, yeah, I mean, in Cleveland, typically uh, most companies, they rotate the drivers on the apparatus. We don't have an engineer status or an operator status. Uh, but as with anything, uh, you know, most fire departments, uh, guys will gravitate or women will gravitate to that natural position. And some shifts may have Kevin Lahane. Kevin's the driver, you know, and he knows that rig. He's always going to get you water. And that's just, that's his role. Right. And uh, you, you kind of fall into that, but uh, yeah, some companies, they rotate the drivers just to get everybody in. But even there, if, if like, if you have a company that has an, basically an assigned driver, They'll take the cadets out and get them driving you know, on the city streets and, and do that training, get them working on the pumps, uh, doing foam exercises, what, what have you. So 
yeah, it's, there's some responsibility there for the officer and the fire and the senior senior firefighters to help train that cadet as well. So, in your first uh, few years on the job, any any calls you ran that stand out as uh, particularly interesting that you learned some big lesson on or or uh, uh, I, made a big impression on you going for the rest of your career? It was my second day in the job. Right, we we had that work and. Anybody that's watching this, you know, understands that adrenaline, your baptism of fire. And then that night we had a drag racing accident where five kids were killed. And it was just a slap that, hey, this is serious, right? And I, I'll, never for, I'll never forget that accident because, you know, here we were just, have, you know, having a great time. And then all of a sudden it was just it was ugly. It was ugly. And, but you just had to focus and you had to do your job. And then when you get back, it was, you know, again, Tommy walked over and he was just like, are, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I said, you know, how often does that happen? <laughs> you know, and uh, well, it happens more than you think. And, but, you know, I get, I think that was kind of the wake up call. Were, were you guys, uh, you mentioned you were just getting into the EMS world at that time. Obviously, EMT coming out of out of the academy. Um, what was who was running EMS at the time, and did Cleveland Fire take that over from a transport standpoint, or how did that evolve, or has it evolved, or what's going on up there? No, uh, you know, we could do a whole podcast on that. Uh, <laughs> the city of Cleveland has a third service, and okay. you know, the third service for many years there have been proposals to merge the two systems. It's basically a political issue at this time. But in the 80s, the fire, the fire department started supplying uh, first responders. So we were doing first responders, you know, to help, help supplement the third service. Uh, the third service is a public entity. It's not a private. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's Cleveland EMS. Another and, department within the city government kind of thing. Right, right. And this is not a knock on the men and women that work for Cleveland EMS. They you know, they do a fantastic job. They, you know, they work under very trying conditions. Uh, they don't get the downtime that we do in the firehouse. Um, but, you know, the, that whole issue is a, it's a political issue. I, I'd rather, you know, I want to focus on the men and women doing the job. Yeah. So we were supplementing them, right? If they had an extended response time or if it was a Delta call, they would dispatch the fire department and we could be on the scene first many, many times and start to initiate care. Um, we had four rescue squads and in the early nineties, we changed them to all, we changed them to ALS capable and we had transport capable capability. So we would actually, when I was on squad one and then when I got promoted, went to squad three, we would transport patients. We were ALS. So we did both. Right. We went to fires, we went to emergencies, but we'd also transport. So, uh, you know, it's still an issue. We have a new administration. They may address it. They may not address it. I, I don't know. When you say rescue squad, it was it was an ambulance. What, what was the role of that crew on a fire? Call? So when we um, we say rescue squad, it's a heavy duty squad. So start okay. to think of a red, heavy duty squad, uh, that size squad, the big squad, uh, our roles were technical rescue, heavy rescue, and then we had segmented the city basically in four quarters, and the, the squad in that quarter would go to every working fire in that quarter. 
So you had four in the whole city. Ran right. And then we other. cut those down to, to two. So basically one east, one west. Because we're divided by a river down the middle. Um, but so you got heavy fire duty because you were going to every working fire. And then when you went to responded to the fire, your initial assignments were search and rescue, uh, support the truck company. And then sometimes, I mean, sometimes you'd be assigned to suppression. And there are sometimes you do all three on the, on the same, on the same call. Yeah. yeah. So for the EMS calls was, were the engines, the trucks and the rescues all running EMS calls yeah. depending on where they were and what was it? Yeah. Cause we had such a heavy volume. I mean, there were, you know, we have made some of our engine companies ALS. The city stopped using our rescue squads as transports. Uh, so some of our engine companies are ALS and they'll be prioritized to go on medical calls as opposed to the truck if they're in the same station. But uh, for the most part, all of our apparatus are first responder capable. And those ALS providers, are they strictly the first response ALS providers yeah. or will they, will they follow the patient with the, the EMS unit to the hospital well, or go with the EMS unit? If it's a complicated issue they have the, the transport unit needs support and they need additional paramedics in there, they will. Uh, many times, you know, the EMS system runs with two. So one of the guys from the truck or the engine will jump in and drive the EMS squad to the hospital while the, the unit follows them to pick up the member at the hospital. True, truly a team effort. It sounds like, yeah. that. you know, I've, I've heard horror stories of others. You know, the fire truck gets there and they treat them until the ambulance gets there and goes, tag, you're it. See you later. Bye. Yeah. And that's not it. No, I think for the most part, are there exceptions? Probably. Uh, for the most part, everybody is focused on patient care. You mentioned you got promoted and, and went to the rescue. What was uh, what was the driving force behind you getting taking those promotional tests and uh, moving up in the ranks? Uh, Chester Ashton. When I got assigned to the rescue squad on my third move, uh, you know, that was a big deal. You know, the squads were like, wow. And I got lucky enough that that's where I was assigned. I don't know if I was good or if someone just liked me somewhere. I don't know how, but I, I don't question. Um, but, uh, you know, I was assigned with some incredible firefighters. Uh, I think of Mark Hollenbeck as an officer. I think, you know, my crew, Dave Hall, Jimmy Ryder, Dougie Kitchen. Uh, but, you know, Chet Ashton was a lieutenant. And right around that time, they had promotions. And Chet got promoted out of the station, but then he came back a very short time later as the captain. And Chester was the, still is, right? Um, incredibly involved on the department, incredibly involved within the local. Uh, he became our president for a while, uh, always involved in workers' comp, trying to help the members uh, work through the process. But he was that quint quintessential calm demeanor the man that's in charge. And I would, you know, always had confidence in him. Always, whatever he told me to do, I knew he had my back. And I would just watch him and learn. And uh, and I, I'm like, I want to be like that guy, right? So when we were eligible to take the promotional test, we took it. A number of us. In our station, uh, we would have study groups where we would all stick together and we would quiz each other. We would just find quiet time in the corner and just 
sit there and read. And we we all wanted to be better than that guy, but we all wanted to be promoted together. Uh, so we were still competing, but we all wanted to be promoted as a group. And there was a huge group out of that station that, that was promoted. Um, you know, it took a lot of work. We had, I don't remember, five, six books. I read Vinnie Dunn's book, The 20 Ways Firefighters Kill Themselves. It's still on my bookshelf here, Robbie. I read it probably yeah. 20 times, and I was like, eh, maybe I should be a post officer, you know, postman. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it was, I, I, you know, I wanted to, wanted to be like Chester. And um, so that was the driving force in taking the promotion. That and my father-in-law had been passed, you know, he passed away early, but he always said, you know, do well on this job. Do well on this job. Take it, you know, take every advantage you can. And so I was, I was thinking of him as well. So was your father-in-law on the job as well? No, he was. Or was he just, he was just a motivator. He was you know, a motivator. A he was, a, he was, he was an incredible guy and died way, way too young. Uh, but he was actually a Cleveland cop. And my, my mother-in-law said she would not marry a cop. So he quit the police <laughs> department and he went and he found a job in sales in the lighting industry. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, so he, 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 he was dedicated to that marriage. So, he, well, uh, yeah, he was, good for he, him. he was, yeah, he was a special guy. Well, you, you rose up through the ranks, obviously. I, th I think, did you, re you left Cleveland not too long ago. Were you, were you a battalion chief in training when you left? I knew. Yeah, I was our, our chief time. of operations acting as our chief of operations, also our chief of training. And about six months before I retired, I had an inkling I was going to go. Um, there were, I really don't want to get into it. You can yeah, Google it. I had some issues with the city yeah. and uh, it was like, uh, okay, I could beat my head into the wall. So I actually transferred back out to this, to the street and to the third battalion, which is actually covers my neighborhood. Oh, so neat. I went back to the firehouse, you know, instead of being downtown at headquarters or running from, or, you know, or running as the assistant chief of the city. So, um, no, and that was that was a great decision, actually. Yeah. So you did operations chief time, obviously lieutenant and captain time, chief of training, mm -hmm. a firefighter. Any of those? What what one of those jobs would you go back to right now, and why? Oh, any of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, each uh, each time period has a, a special meaning. When I was at Squad One, we were in Station Nine, which is at on Woodland Avenue, and the, the station is closed now. But it was a ranch station that was built in the 1950s, plain layout. Uh, we have them all over the Midwest and the East Coast, right? They, two units side by side. And, um, but the crew from Engine 9 and from the squad, they're still, you know, I still love those guys. I, I, many of them are no longer with us, uh, unfortunately, because of cancer. Uh, but extremely, extremely close. And this was before cell phones and before social media. So we got away with a few things that today we we probably wouldn't advise firefighters <laughs> to do. Uh, but we had cemeteries all around us. And the street behind us was vacant except for two houses. And we knew the people in the houses, you know, but just just the closeness uh, of, of those units. And, uh, you know, we had some great times and also some challenging times on the fire ground together. But then at Lieutenant, I had a great young crew. It was a, 
it was a chance to be in a different role and it was a chance to be responsible for something. And I think you mentioned it, or we, we had talked about it before this, you know, what changed and here I was that squad guy, you know, get your helmet as dirty as you can get as far in there as you can challenging each other. And then all of a sudden I realized that I'm responsible for the lives of these three firefighters behind me. Um, it was no longer me being a jackass or just, you know, George Muleheim and I, you know, uh, I'll just say that, you know, uh, I'm responsible to make sure that these young guys go home. And I also had a responsibility to mentor them a little bit and make sure that they understood the job. Much like Henry Grip, uh, Tommy McCarthy, and Skip McNamara did for me. And I was young when I got promoted on the job. I think I had six years on in my seventh year when I got promoted. So, you know, that was a new challenge too. And I went from Rescue Squad 1 over to Rescue Squad 3. So one of the guys on I got on with was on my crew. And one of the other guys was Richie Walker. Richie had been on a job for 27 years and all 27 years on Rescue Squad 3. And he was an African-American guy that was just, you know, he uh, he exuded experience. And the first time I had to work with that crew, we showed up and Paulie Stalter was the BC. And I'm chief, what do you need? Go up on the second floor, check for extension. You go up there, looking around, it's, it's clear. And um, I don't remember how, but Richie went over and he kind of opened a little hole in the wall. And he said, uh, hey, boss, you want to come over here and check this out? How do you think it looks? I said, Richie, you tell me. If you say it's good, it's good. And he said, we're good here. He, he said, we're good here, boss. And I was like, when I thought back on it, you know, when I got back to the station, uh, he was setting the signal to everybody that he's okay. I got him. And I felt so much more comfortable after that exchange with Richie right there and so um and then you know like i said each rank has special moments uh, whether it's the captain or the bc the chief of training when you train a, a class and you release them to the department there's a strong sense of pride when the chief of operations we had the republican national convention and making candidate trump move his helicopter that was a great time. <laughs> that was great. You know, being able to help the secret service. So I, I guess each rank has its, has its moments that I would love to go back to. I mean, I think there's a little bit in all of us that would love to go back and just be a firefighter for a little while again, back to our old station where we had a lot of fun. Uh, but I don't think our bodies could sustain that kind of punishment. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it is a young man's game riding. Oh yeah. Riding backwards. Yeah, for sure. So ch changing gears just a little bit here in all of that career path you talked about mm -hmm. nowhere in there. Did you mention you were a fire marshal, <laughs> fire inspector, building inspector, Yeah. but we, we got connected in the code development world. How in the heck did a, operational firefighter, fire officer, training division chief, how the heck did you wind up 
end code development hearings because for those of you who don't have never been to those, I think everybody needs at least one tour on that assignment. <laughs> How did you get into that world of code development and speaking on behalf of the IAFF mm-hmm. at these national and international code meetings? Well, code development's probably better than a stick in the eye, but not much sometimes, <laughs> much. as you know. <laughs> so you're right. I never worked in fire prevention. I never was assigned as a fire marshal. Uh, you know, in Cleveland, like we, we did our building inspections that we were assigned to do, uh, but it involves free beer and a dare. And uh, oh, there you go. There you go. Right. <laughs> so there's a, uh, a guy that I played rugby with. His name is Steve Tyler. Not the singer Steve Tyler. Uh, believe me, this Steve has no musical capabilities whatsoever. <laughs> Much better at rugby than singing, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> and he works for a uh, large company in Cleveland, and he was in the fire stop business. And he called me one day. He goes, hey, uh, or he grabbed me after practice. He goes, hey, I want to pick your brain for a little bit. I said, well, that won't take long, Steve. What do you got? And he goes, um, "My," in-, he goes, I'm I'm the president of, of our trade association and our members want to pick the brain of somebody in the fire service. We want to talk to them about training. You know, what does the fire department need? What are they looking for? What avenues, what, how they, how do they get their training? And I said, well, you know, we're in contract negotiations. I'm pretty busy right now. He goes, well, our meetings in Key West. And I'm like, well, really? He goes, we'll pay for it. And I go, he goes, we'll get you there. We'll pay for your expenses. I go, what about my bar tab? And he paused. <laughs> Which might be more expensive yeah. than the. He paused a half a second because he knew the bar tab would probably be greater than the airfare. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we got that. I go, okay. My schedule just go. freed up, Steve. And uh, <laughs> so I, uh, this is 2000, um, 2003, 2004. So early yet my career. And um, so I, I go down to Key West and I, they, they have these two committees and I sit with their educational committee and I'm making a short story long, but uh, we're talking about what kind of training, you know, and, and all this. And then we're at a break and these two individuals come up to us, Richard Lick from 3M and John Valuas from Ilti. And they start talking to me about building codes. They start going, what about, what, about, what about this? What about this? What about this? Do you know that they're taking this out of the code? Do you know? I go, listen. Oh, I, I think I responded to him. I go, I've never been in fire prevention. I think the codes are getting stronger, aren't they? Oh, they went crazy. And this is right when the ICC was born. So yep. uh, oh, this is actually 2003. Because so first, about the second edition of the codes, I think that ICC came yeah. out with. But, so I yeah. think they were working on the 2006 edition, or at that time they were doing supplemental editions, uh, and they had merged the three major codes in the U.S. into one code. And when you merge the three, typically you have that negotiation process, and you're you're going to find compromise. And so, in areas of some of the codes, you saw what some people would say was a reduction in protection, right? In some areas of the code, you saw probably what some people would interpret as an improvement in protection. But either which way, these guys were all over me. And I'm like, holy crap, I didn't know any of this. So like I said, I was a union officer. So I called the IFF, I called Rich Duffy from Key West. And I said, Rich, um, 
do you realize any of this? And he's like, no, no, no. And I could tell Rich is like, what the hell are you calling me about for building codes, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'll meet with these guys. Sure, sure, I'll meet with these guys. So then these guys go, well, hey, we've got a proposition for you. You should go to a code hearing and you should see what goes on. There's one happening in Cincinnati in two weeks. So in two weeks' time, I actually drove to Cincinnati. Remember, Ohio's like plumbing. Cleveland's up here. Cincinnati's down here. <laughs> it nails paydays on Friday. Uh, I just say that to my Ohio brethren. But um, so I went down there. And what I saw, Robbie, I saw a lot of individuals that were walking to the microphone. And if you don't know how the pro codes process goes, in the initial opening round, it's a committee that's, that's evaluating the code change proposals. Anybody can make one, right? But you make a code change proposal. Proponents are those who are for the proposal, get uh, two minutes each to stand at the microphone and talk about why they should support this code change proposal. Likewise, the opponents get some time to speak and then you have rebuttal for each side. And then the committee can accept, reject, or I should say disapprove or modify, right? So being the shy person I am, at this point in time, we had just laid off 70 firefighters just prior to this through budget cuts. We reduced fire prevention by a third, and we were looking at ways to enhance our uh, company inspections where we could identify problems, then refer those over to the Fire Prevention Bureau. So I'm watching all these people that are walking to the microphone. The vast majority of them had very good intentions, but I, you could tell they had never been on a fire truck, let alone crawling down a dark hallway, right? So there was a proposal from the Florida building uh, officials that was looking to uh, put a stencil that would identify fire-rated walls and smoke barriers. And I'm like, this is a good idea because then our companies, when they come through, if they look at the just in, in an inconspicuous place, look through, is it a fire-rated wall? Oh, there's a hole in it. There's a gap in it. Refer that over to fire prevention so it can be followed up on. So I went to the microphone and said as much. Uh, an architect comes up behind me when it's time for the opponents. And he said, firefighters checking my drop ceilings, I'd get more value if they empty the wastebaskets. And I'm like, what? And, and, then, and now, now you're spun up. Oh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> then some other guy gets up there, and I won't mention his name. He goes, you know, we just put the wet stuff on the orange stuff. And I'm like, I went back up and I was very respectful. I just said, as a career firefighter, we have the responsibility to suppress fire, but also to prevent fires. And one of the ways we do that is through our prevention and inspection programs and all this. And I'm walking away from the microphone and I lean down to the architect and I said, and hey, we don't do waste baskets. And he's like, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. And it turns out that architect is Dave Collins, who I became extremely good friends with Dave. And uh, I went to a second meeting right after that. I came back from that meeting and some of the topics they were talking about are some of the initial topics from the collapse of the Trade Center. And also um, stairwells, there were a number of things. And then I went to a second a technical committee meeting shortly afterwards in, in Chicago. So I drove up there and attended this meeting and I went in uniform, I was a captain at the time. And I looked across, there was one other firefighter in there and that was Jack Murphy from New Jersey. 
And the committee's talking to Paul Halstead, was the committee chair. And they're talking about this, talking about this. And this guy goes, you know what? Let's just put it on a tape. We're talking about acceptable losses in building fires. And Paul goes, yes, we are. We're talking about acceptable losses. What is an acceptable loss in a building fire? And I'm sitting there thinking about this as they're debating it. And I raised my hand and he goes, oh, Captain, you have a comment. I said, yes, we're having this discussion about acceptable losses of occupants in a building. And you could see he was uneasy a little bit. And I go, what about us? We're going in for those acceptable losses. He goes, we love our firefighters. We love our firefighters. It says it right in the intent of the code. And I sat there going, "Uh," to pull my old Larry David, "Uh, I don't think so, right? And so I went back and I wrote a six-page letter to the IFF and to Rich Duffy. And I copied our district vice president, Tommy Miller, at the time. And I said, this topic, this topic, this topic. And I gave a summary and all this. I said, we need to be involved in this arena. And um, Tommy got it, unbeknownst to me at the time. Uh, you know, Tommy called the IFF and said, support this kid. But this kid wants to do you support him. And uh, long story short, Rich called me and he said, hey, listen, uh, yeah, we, you're right. We're going to get involved. And I go, good, good. We got a retired fire marshal or something. He goes, no, no. You just volunteer. I go, Tag you go Rich, I've never been in fire prevention. He goes, your idea, your responsibility. <laughs> I go, there oh, you go. damn. No, but no good you, deed goes unpunished. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, Robbie, I learned more about my profession by being involved in the code process because it forced me to learn more. The topics that we were discussing in the building and fire codes, residential codes, I mean, it's the gamut, right? Uh, anything involved with the design, the structure, the protection, and the upkeep of those buildings, which is our work environment, is in those books. And so when we start talking about topics in these discussions and these debates, um, especially if you're a committee member, you got to do some reading. You got to do some studying. And, uh, you know, and representing the IFF, like you mentioned, you're representing 300,000 career firefighters the U.S. and Canada. And that, to me, that was a, a big, big responsibility. And once we got involved, boy, everyone wanted a piece of the IFF involved. And, you know, it was a challenge. You had to figure out, okay, what's proprietary? What's what's someone just pushing to get their, their product recognized versus what was a legitimate issue for our members that represented the safety of our members? I mean, we lost... Um, Brother Arnie Wolf in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And when the NIOSH report came out, it recommended changing the building code to require the protection of lightweight construction. And, you know, we were successful in doing that in the 2012 edition of the residential code. But that required the research from UL, from Tyco, from the National Council of Can- Research Council of Canada. And that actually forced us to, you know, all of a sudden we had data. And now an untraditional partner like the National Association of Home Builders and the American Wood Council, we're calling and saying, hey, can we talk, right? We understand what you're dealing with. We want to find a solution. We want to find a compromise. And the next thing you know, we're working together, proposing stuff together. And we get that change. And I know we don't have time to go on all these different code changes. But we could do this for a couple hours. Oh, yeah, yeah, just emergency radio operations, right? The stairwell protections. Tons of things like that. 
breathing air in the stairwell. You still owe me a beer over that little code change when you were when you were the chair of the committee and said, "Hey, can you go up and represent this? It's going to be a slam dunk. It's easy." And like forty minutes of arguing later, I'm going, "Sean, I'm going <laughs> to." It's going to yeah. the annex. Don't worry about it. It's, it's it's easy. Let me ask you a question. I got one question. I got one more question. I, I'm, wish, just, I'm just glad I did my homework and read the code change and did a little work to in case somebody. Yeah, but that wide eye look, I was like, oh. Crap! I owe big on this one. <laughs> it was a fun time, no, no doubt. I, I still remember that was yeah. a good one. But, but, and like you, asked, I learned building codes after I got in the fire marshal's office mm-hmm. and fire codes. You know, having been your career piece in in Cleveland, pretty much operational the whole time. What would you say a a firefighter, fire officer, what what should they do or? understand or know about the building or fire codes to make them better at their jobs. Yeah. I don't expect, listen, a lot of times I had the folks in our department going, why the hell are you involved with this? And if you start to explain it, they're going, Oh, we're glad you're there. Right. Um, Excuse me. I don't expect every firefighter to, to know the codes or to necessarily get involved in the code process all the time. But, I would say the majority of our fire departments in the U S are responsible for some form of inspection. Uh, They need, whether you go there on a medical call, whether you go there on a general inspection, whether you go there just to walk through, right. Be aware, look around, you know, having a basic understanding of your work environment, the construction aspect, how is this constructed? How is it protected? Are the protection features in place? Are they operational? Uh, As you know, we have a lot of trade-offs in our building codes because of the presence of sprinkler systems. So you're taking away protection, basically, of the structural members in that building because that sprinkler system's there. But if the sprinkler system isn't functioning, your work environment, your work platform has been compromised. So you need to do that. You need to take these inspections seriously. It's, it's, not, it's not a wasted effort. Right. And um, and there are times that we need involvement. And I remember in Cleveland, we had a fire marshal, Mark Scott. I was at the union office and we uh, when we lost we lost a firefighter in 1981, Danny, 1983, Danny Pescatrice. And he was in it was an electrical warehouse type thing. And we actually got our past devices because of this. Danny was in one side of the building, thought he was in another place. Right. Long story short. So jump ahead 20 years, and this company wants a sprinkler variance. And they want, they were trying to get a sprinkler variance in front of the zoning board to get the sprinkler variance. And Mark Scott called the union office. He said, I need a number of members there. I don't need you to speak. I don't need you to do anything. I just want you to stand at the back of the room. And this is before cell phones or anything like that. So we just called stations and we said, hey, call some off-duty members. We need you at City Hall, this room, uh, at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, whatever it was, right? Wear a T-shirt. And Mark Scott went up to the front of the room, and he did all the talking to the committee, and he was talking about, we lost Danny Pescatrice in this building. We're not going to lose another firefighter in this building. This building, the safety of this building hasn't been improved. It's required to have a sprinkler system. And the owner's like, oh, if I can't, if I have to put a sprinkler system, I'm moving. I'm taking my business elsewhere. Like five, six employees, right? Um, but the zoning board, every time they looked at the people sitting at the table talking and testifying, 
they saw 30 firefighters standing in the back of the room, right? And when Mark ended, it goes, we will not lose another in this building. Zoning board took about half a second to go. Experience denied, you know? And it was just because our members were part of the process. Yeah, and those 30, 30 guys and gals probably didn't know the details of it, but exactly. the, the show of numbers is impressive. I'll, I'll share one story with you from my time at the General Assembly in Virginia. We were battling a fireworks bill, uh, consumer fireworks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, a, it was an all call. Everybody come to the General Assembly, wear uniforms. You don't have to speak unless you really want to. And, and I got to speak on behalf of Virginia Fire. So it was one, one, one great honor I had there. And mm-hmm. I said, I've got a number of members here who want to speak, but here are the three or four things we're going to say, and this is a bad idea. And rather than have all of my colleagues come up here, I'm going to ask that they stand. And literally about 60 guys and gals stood up in uniform, yep. and that was the end of it. Right. And um, one, one of those senators told our county lobbyist at the time, he said, hey, I was really in favor of the beer bill, but I couldn't vote against that show of force in the room. And I'm like, got it. Now I know how to get your vote if I really, really need it. Right. So. And you know what? Less said is more sometimes, right? If you had all 40 people walking up to that, people would have been like, you and I have been in those yeah. hearings where oh, you yeah. think if everyone speaks, then, oh, geez, oh, Pete. Just, yeah. even, even though it's a good idea, you're making me mad. Yeah, <laughs> you're taking your pen trying to stab yourself in the temple, right? That's uh, right. But you're right. One person speaks, but that show is, it's pretty powerful. I think, you know, it it's... Um, so, you know, my advice, that's basically what I try to tell folks. You don't necessarily have to be this incredible subject matter expert and get in a tit for tat with an architect or an engineer, right? You're, you're there to tell a story and why this is important to you and stick to that. Right? You Just go. your involvement is sometimes is enough. Well, we, like you said, we could talk about that for a couple of days probably oh, yeah. and uh, maybe that'll be a topic for another podcast when i can come to cleveland and show me if there's a irish bar somewhere in hey joe McIlvaney was just in town last weekend and uh joe brought a buddy in and we went down to the baseball game and we had a great time we had a great yeah, cool. time yeah well i'm, I'm planning on doing that one day and uh if you've listed a whole list of names here of, of guys that you've worked with over the year if they're still around maybe one day i think that that Getting that group together and just telling the stories and, and letting them tell the tell the Sean DeCrane stories. Someone not allowed to tell. <laughs> well, that's part of the rules. Is I, I'll record them all, but if you don't want them told, you got to tell me, and I'll I'll kind of edit them out. But uh, you left uh, left Cleveland a couple of years ago and went to work for uh, UL. What what are you doing with UL these days? Uh, currently, I'm the manager of industry relations. So like the Dr. Laura of the built environment for UL, uh, right? <laughs> Uh, but I have a, a strong focus on the first responders in the emergency community. And it's not just here in the U.S. or North America, but, but globally. I'll be going to Australia in, what, three weeks? Yeah. Wow. I, I, actually, before the pandemic, spent a lot of time in Asia, New Zealand, Australia. The challenges are the same, whether you're in Vietnam or Australia, New Zealand, Britain. Uh, we have a lot of the same challenges. And... Uh, really what we, what I tried to do is build those relationships where we can bring some of the challenges that industry is having. And then like we did a, we did a project last year it was actually during the pandemic. We had an automated distributor come to UL. They were doing testing on sprinkler performance, uh, sprinkler design, 
these are robotic systems, but it's vertical. And one of their competitors had a fire in the UK that resulted in the loss of the whole building. So typically these automated uh, storage and fulfillment centers cover a small footprint of a very large warehouse. But because of this fire, insurance agencies were starting to rate them as if there was a fire in one of these systems, the whole building would be a loss. That's a big hit financially. So they had been doing the sprinkler testing. They were having designs that would typically, unless something went crazy, uh, keep the fire in check. What they didn't have is how does the fire department confirm extinguishment or complete extinguishment? Because what happened in the UK is they shut off the sprinkler systems to evaluate where the fire was at, where it was located in the system, and the condition of the fire, which then the fire gained some headway. And by the time they could get the sprinkler systems turned back on, it was OVER, right? They lost the whole building. So uh, I can use an auto store. They're based out of Norway. Uh, came to us, came to UL, and they said, do you have a relationship with the fire service? Can we talk to them about this? And we made no promises, but we brought in uh, four additional firefighters besides myself, George Healy from the FDNY, Sean Gray from Cobb County, right outside of Atlanta. Uh, we brought Jim Dominic, who's retired out of Wilmette, Illinois, and Pete Van Dorp out of Chicago and Algonquin in the Hills. And we made no promises. In fact, we were sitting there going, no way are we going to do this? Because basically it's, it's, it's a series of plastic bins. 16 bins high and it's it's condensed and you can have tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of bins with plastics which we know is a you know the right. fire load and right. heat release rates and all the challenges so, going on but we listened to them and we said okay well we'll tell you what we'll we'll give it a try and this company actually uh, we have a another facility at UL. it's just about a, a mile away and it's our fenestration testing, which is, you know, you're, you're testing the exterior walls of buildings, uh, performance under wind, rain, environmental testing. Uh, that's where they throw the two by fours through the windows and doors, you know, checking for them. Uh, so we had space there. So they actually built us a 10 bin by 10 bin array and then let us play. And so for three days, George, Jim, Sean, myself, Pete, and Adam Berwe, and Greg Sutter from our R&D team at UL just had at it. And we were trying all these different methods. Do we tip them over? Do we do this? You had all these commodities. What if you have liquids in there? Now they're slip hazards. And so the second day, late in the second day, we developed what we felt was maybe a, a, a method that might work to actually penetrate into the structure and we'd be tunneling in. And basically you're going column by column, and you're taking out part of the lower column, removing the bins out in a controlled manner, and then continuing forward. So uh, we practiced it. And then the next step, the third phase, was actually uh, working with AutoStore. We identified cities where they had these systems in their jurisdictions. And we reached out to these fire chiefs and invited them to send members to participate. And AutoStore covered all of this. They covered all the expenses. And so during the pandemic, we had these firefighters that showed up from San Antonio, from Henrietta, New York, from Gray's Lake, Illinois. Um, uh, oh, crap. I'm, I'm forgetting Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
So uh, we spent a day in training. Uh, some of it was uh, presentation, some of it was hands-on. And then the next day we lit a fire and had them respond. And our subject matter XMEs, myself, Sean, George, Pete, Jim, we acted as the company officer and we put it to practice, right? And so we developed a, a methodology. And so it's kind of a long story, but it's an example of, you know, industries facing a challenge, especially when it comes to a fire service response. Um, can we bring the fire service to help meet those challenges and find some solutions? But then we also work with the fire service with the batteries. We're doing a project for DOE right now, looking at exterior wall performance, you know, for the balance what you and I have been dealing with for a long time, the energy performance of the wall, yet the fire safety of it, and also residential ESS. And again, it's bringing industry and the fire service together to look at these challenges and can we find some potential solutions. So it's kind of exciting work at times. That is neat. I, I, I'll just kind of put a theme behind this backdrop of the last conversation for the last hour or so is it sounds like in, in the best way to solve a problem is to bring all the stakeholders together and talk about it and have it out at the table. And I think you've, you've kind of exemplified that when you walked up at the podium at the, the ICC hearings and the architect grabbed you and somebody right. else grabbed you and, and then, okay, let's sit down and talk about this right. and, and hammer out the details, which, which, which is what you're doing at UL. And um, the Fire Safety Research Institute that UL has now is doing a lot of great research with fire behavior and how fire attack work should work does work how it doesn't work right and uh, i think what ul is doing for the fire service in general is, is just I th- exemplary i think my involvement with fsri on the advisory board is probably the proudest uh that i have of my career the work that we've done with steve kerber's team i remember when it was steve and robin and that was it right and we we had an advisory board of 20 and Steve and Robin to do all this work. Two people uh, to work. Yeah, now Steve's team is, you know, he is, uh, what is it, 28 right now? And they're still bringing a couple people on board. And the scope of the work really is just, it's amazing. We have our annual meeting coming up in Philadelphia the first week of August, second week of August. And um, it's just really, really exciting to, to see and hear what these young engineers are working on. They're brilliant. Yeah. Well, we've been at it over an hour. Um, yeah. I promised you this was going to be about an hour, but I knew we could probably talk for three. Um, so next time I'm through Cleveland, for sure, I'm going to bring yeah, the we'll gear. Go get your and, Irish uh, whiskey. I'll go get mine. We'll sit down. and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's in the cabinet, in the back. Yeah. I got I got the bottle of Jameson's that was pulled from the cask at Jameson's oh, really? in Dublin. So, yeah, that one's, that one's staying cork for a special occasion. Yeah. But, uh but yeah, I've got that handy. So uh, I appreciate your time. And any, any, I always like to kind of wrap it up. One of the things I've heard from younger firefighters who listen to this is they appreciate the, the kind of last little words of wisdom. And if you had the chance to go speak to another recruit academy, I'm sure you've done it in your career before, of uh, firefighters who are just finishing up their academies and getting ready to go to work in a job, what advice would you give them uh, to, to give them a successful career and be able to retire 25, 30 years down the road, depending upon the system. What would you tell those guys or gals? You know, I have two messages, really. Two short messages. Um, One is, you'll hear a lot of older guys tell you, ah, the job just isn't the same, right? Ah, it's not the job it used to be. And they're right. It's not, right? For the better. Um, Regardless, this is still the greatest job in the world. 
country. It's still the greatest job in the world. It's a calling. It's not just a job. It's a career. It's a calling. And you have to treat it as such. You have to treat it as a career. This is your life. This is your lifestyle. So you have to seize the responsibility to understand what your career is and what your job is. And you have to seize the moment uh, that you get those opportunities to learn and never stop trying to learn because the moment you get complacent is the moment you're going to get in the jackpot. And the second aspect is that, and Robbie, I know you've done this, wherever you go, people seem to have a sense. They're going, oh, you're a firefighter, aren't you? People identify you as a firefighter. They identify you with the service. They identify you as that profession, right? And whether you're on duty or off duty, you have a responsibility to carry on as a responsible member of that profession. And people are watching, you know, whether you have a uniform on or you don't have a uniform on, people watch you, people evaluate you. And um, whether it's right or wrong, when you're off duty, you're still not off duty. You have a responsibility to act respectfully and as, as you would as you were on duty in, in many cases. So, uh, you know, it's a little, uh, I guess, uh, sappish, but, uh, no, I, I believe that, that uh, we're on 24-7. And it doesn't mean you can't have fun, believe me. We have our fun, right? But, uh, you know, treat treat others with respect, and whether you're on or off the job, and treat this job with respect. Yeah, great advice. It's, um, you know, always a harken back to the, the news article where the an individual breaks the law, gets in trouble, does something wrong, and it's not a news story. But when the firefighter breaks the law, gets in trouble, does something wrong, firefighter from fire department XYZ did this, that then it becomes news just because you're in that profession. And you know what I hate, what I absolutely hate is when someone gets caught doing something wrong, they go, I'm a firefighter. Like, okay, well, then go ahead, right? There's a yeah, subtle not... way to make sure they know you're a firefighter, but just don't, hey, I'm a firefighter. That doesn't give you the right to break the law. It doesn't give you the right to be an ass, um, you know. You can still handle yourself in a respectful way to let them know that uh, I'm begging for professional care. Please, please, please don't throw me in. Yeah. <laughs> well, any any other comments? Uh, anything you want to cover or talk about before we uh, wrap this up? And uh... no, I wouldn't subject anyone to more time than this in one sitting. So you know, hey, this has been great. I'd love to get together again. Uh, I always look forward to seeing you and talking to you. But I, you know, I do love this job i love our career my career uh still continue to be a firefighter to the until i take my last breath i always feel that way and so you know i i, I just i hope that passion rubs off on people and i want to see the next generation as they come on have that same passion i believe they do i believe they do they just show it in a different manner right yeah well uh i'm trying to do something here now here's a lesson on Robbie trying to work technology. Trying to work the computer, yeah, technology. I'm occasionally technology uh, handicapped. But uh, retired Chief Sean DeCrane from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, thanks uh, thanks for being here. Man, I appreciate the stories, and I'm going to look forward to doing it again. Let's do it in person yeah. with maybe a pint glass of a dark malted beverage in front of us. Sounds good, my friend. Or two. And if uh, – Anybody wants to help support this podcast, make sure you can uh, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast. 
and if you have any questions or want to get in touch with Sean, shoot me an email at firehouselogbook at gmail.com and make sure you follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And with that, I'll say, my brother, thanks again. Uh, I'll see you in Louisville, I'm betting. I'm hoping to get there. The travel schedule is pretty tough. Right now, that week, we are scheduled to blow up a garage in Illinois. Oh. Part of, well, you know, maybe, at, I'll, maybe I'll come to Illinois and <laughs> hang out with you because I'm sure that's going to be more fun. It's all in the where... name of science, Robbie. That's right. Yes, sir. <laughs> all right, Sean. Thanks a lot, buddy. I appreciate it. Okay, take care, brother. Yeah.